all the things that we thought they weren't going to do like we were saying earlier the the tin hat stuff it all came to it all came to pass they've proven themselves to be petty vindictive and just bizarre in their in their actions and their rationales for their actions so we should be asking ourselves what are we going to do when this happens Welcome back to the Feds, insiders bringing accountability, integrity, and reform to a broken bureaucracy. I am Stephanie Weidel. Before we get started with our interview, let me encourage you all to like, comment, subscribe to, and share our podcast with those around you. This is the podcast designed not only to share the stories of people fighting for your and their rights within the government, but also to provide those same people with information and tools to embolden them to keep standing strong and keep speaking up when faced with corruption and to bring their friends along with them. Truth does not need consensus here. Our hope is to embolden people to stand for truth. And if you'd like to join us in our mission, please visit and become a member at fedsforfreedom.org. Welcome to the Feds, insiders bringing accountability, integrity, and reform to a broken bureaucracy. At Feds for Freedom, we value constructive dissent and healthy debate. The views and opinions shared in today's episode are those of the speaker alone and do not express the views or opinions of the U.S. government or any other employer. Today we are joined by attorney Scott Lloyd, general counsel of Feds for Freedom. As senior executive during the Trump administration, he oversaw the Office of Refugee Resettlement. There he worked with leadership at the National Security Council, Department of Defense, Department of Homeland Security, and with White House senior advisors. In 2020, he opened the practice that would become Lloyd, Lemon, and Hale. As its managing partner, he has served as general counsel for Feds for Freedom since late 2021. Today, we discuss why lawyers often shy away from taking on medical freedom cases, what we can expect from the EEOC lawsuits, and what Scott has seen in the individual federal employee realm. We had discussed the censorship Feds for Freedom has seen and what encourages Scott to keep fighting harder for constitutional rights. Thanks so much for coming on, Scott. It's great to see you. Uh, I'm happy to be here. All right. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background and how you even started looking into medical freedom? (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, the answer to that question probably starts with just, I I went to law school and I was really interested in the pro-life movement, which from the inside looks like a civil rights movement from, from the outside looks like a, a fringe group of weirdos and things. (laughs) And so, and so I think I was used to being in an environment that isn't well accepted among polite society and at the cocktail parties and everything like that. And then over time, as I realized this about myself and, and my legal career and what I was interested in, I just found that, um, you know, I guess God put it in my heart to be in the place to make um, the arguments that were most difficult to make on behalf of the people who are having the most trouble finding somebody to speak for them. And so even within the pro-life movement, I was drawn to talk about the things that the movement doesn't want to talk about. And then um, 
and then moving on to religious liberty, just um, oppressed minorities and everything. And then so medical freedom just sort of, I, I saw as, as I, I ran for town council and I just saw in my Facebook feed or whatever else, I saw people who were really uncomfortable with the whole vaccine schedule and everything else. And we had our own children and we were going to the wellness check visits and it's like, Oh, it's time for the shot. It's like, what's in this and everything else. And, and I mean, I get, uh, our kids are without getting into all of it. I mean, some of them have had some of their shots. We're not anti-vaccine or anything like that. We're just like to know what's going on and what's going into our bodies, what's going into our kids' bodies. And then I saw that there are people who are really deep into questioning this and like, no, keep this stuff away from me. And it's like, well, I, I don't know about the science. I know about the law and I, I see that these people have a perspective and they need somebody to, to stand up for that perspective and acknowledge that it's legitimate in the marketplace of ideas. And so on on council I started I started supporting that but it was basically like along the lines of these people need a a voice someone to help legitimize the fact that you know they've got thoughts and rights and everything else and whether it's the mainstream or not um that's the whole beauty of our country is that the minorities have rights as well and and um you just need people to to make the argument for them. And here I am. I've got my law degree, so let's go. <laughs> <laughs> so you were part of the Trump administration. Yeah. What did you do with that? I was the uh I was the director of the Office of Refugee Resettlement, um, which they administer the, there's a whole refugee resettlement program, and so people who are refugees, they can opt to to the United States under certain circumstances. And we're actually one of the only countries that really does that to any substantial degree. And it's something that started in the during the Cold War and focused on Cold War refugees from the Iron Curtain. And then over time, you know, with the Somalia conflict and everything else, it's it's focused on different groups and different conflicts and everything. And they also uh, run a repatriation program, which has since moved. Um, this, is a, this is from the Social Security Act. If there's an American somewhere in the world and they find themselves destitute, but they want to get back to the United States, they can receive a loan to get back to the United States. And that happens on just an individual basis. But it also happens on an emergency basis. So if there's an attack in some country somewhere and they need to get the Americans out, so en masse, the repatriation program helps with that. And then there's the unaccompanied alien children program where if a child comes into the United States without status and they're under 18, then the U.S. government takes care of them and finds uh, basically, in most cases, a relative for them to stay with in the United States. And that's a topic that's been talked of a lot on the border. Yes. it's it, I mean, it's a, it's a major topic. Um, I 
have been focused on other things, but uh, I don't, I don't, somebody started to ask me about a few questions because they knew I had a background in it and it was, they were from a congressional office and I didn't realize, but that program, the unaccompanied alien children program, well, no, that the office has grown tenfold since I, I left. So, and uh, you left in 2020. I left in 2018 or 2018, yeah, uh, the end of 2018. Mm. But since then, it's gone. So it's it's experienced exponential growth in the past, but usually it's it the program has doubled. Mm-hmm. But I, I was pretty shocked to hear that it's. I mean, it's more than 10, 10 times as large as. Uh, so the, we were seeing maybe sixty thousand kids, and now they're seeing four hundred thousand kids a year. Um, have they broken down the um, the ratios of what's coming, who is coming across the border versus other countries? Yeah, um, flying in the. Oh, I see. I see where. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's an interesting question. Most of them are coming through the border. I mean, ninety nine percent of them. And it's, interestingly, the program started in the nineties with with children who smuggled themselves out of China in shipping containers, and they were going into the Immigration and Naturalization Services, which is law enforcement program. And the go the Congress said, "Well, we want we want to take a humanitarian approach, so let's put them in this." Office of Refugee Resettlement, which is a human services program. Um, but then this became known uh, south of the border, and it's something that smugglers learn to capitalize on, and so they, they offer uh, to bring kids up um, through, through the south to the southern border. We could talk all day yeah, about probably this. probably could. But... Okay, so in 2020, so yeah. you have started your own law firm. Yeah. And uh, you live in Virginia. Yes. And uh, in, the, in 2020, you ran for town council in yeah. your, in your town. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that and what a town councilor does? Sure. I just came out of the federal government with policy experience, and that's always been an interest of mine since... I, I guess I was a teenager, um, and I wanted to know, or I wanted to, I did some thinking about how I could put that to good use. And part of my opening uh, law practice was this idea that I always had a firm conviction that the real action, political action, um, the things that are really important happen at the local level in church basements and everything else, kitchen tables. And the federal government gets a lot of attention, but in terms of the things that affect your everyday life, uh, the rubber hits the road at the um, at the local level. But and so I ran for town council, and town council, they're they're depending on on the locality, they're just keeping the lights on, keeping the roads fixed and and passable. Funding schools, I mean, that's that was a county thing, and, and we were in the town. But uh, school issues and and zoning is a is a big thing. That's a fascinating thing. That could be the topic of a of a um, of a podcast. But 
the question of what you can build where is a huge question and it affects gosh billions and billions of dollars throughout the country but it's made at the at the local level um and that that's a major thing but it's a little bit of a departure from working in the federal government where you're talking working on border issues national mm-hmm. security abortion and all that sort of mm-hmm. thing here it's curb and gutter <laughs> You brought the medical freedom fight into the town council in 2021. Would you talk a little bit about that? Well, um, and this is before any mandate happened. Well, yeah. And, and I, this is the interesting thing because I, I remember talking to the councilman who supported this with me, but he was saying, you know, when they first invented the shot in 2021, I was saying there's going to be a mandate for this. And if you went out and said that to people, they'd say, you're crazy. Yes. You're crazy. You're like Mm -hmm. a tin hat dude. (laughs) And I just, I saw that and I, I, I don't know that I had any thoughts formed. I had just this separate thought. Like I, I see Friends, people with medical educations who are struggling to just say, like, I I don't want to suffer for the medical choices I make. I didn't see like that that had a voice or um I don't know that it really had a political movement behind it that I felt was was strong enough. Um later I learned that there there's actually plenty of support but in any case um and so i'm like let's let's see what we can do here and i think that the idea that i had was just basically to treat um vaccine status like another one of the protected classes mm-hmm. of uh that you find in the civil rights act and so i put that forward as an idea um at council and so why would the council have anything to do with uh, medical freedom legislation like why yeah yeah well the the idea is that um well that's one of the things that why it didn't it didn't work i mean so the the town attorney and everything they're like they said we we weren't empowered to make that sort of thing i of course had arguments as to why we had the power to do it but in Virginia, you, you need to, the, the local council needs to receive power from the state. It's a Dillon rule state. Mm. And so, yeah, I was saying, well, here is where we find the power that we've received from the state. And they're like, no, you can't interpret it that way. I'm like, yes, you can. <laughs> but eventually you did see some issues arise with medical freedom when it came to the local hospital. Yeah, correct? exactly. Exactly. They, um, so it it was so we're talking February of 2021 when we first started having the discussion and then it was probably not until May or June where you first started seeing some of the first private uh, vaccine mandates and Mm -hmm. our local hospital system jumped right on it and well first they started encouraging it and we me and a, a few other folks were like, we need to watch this. Like, are you guys going to mandate it? Oh, no, 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 no. And then, <laughs> and then like a, m- a month later, like, this is happening. 
right before my eyes that tin has stuff that you thought never could happen in the United States of America. It's happening. This is like a train wreck in slow motion. Like, how do you, how, what do you do? Like, you got to do something. Yeah. <laughs> so we, we, we just hit it as hard as we could. I mean, um, a bunch of nurses put together first a group and then, and then, a. Uh, uh, they formed or they started the first beginnings of a union. They they walked out, they picketed and everything else, but they still did the mandate. And, and what was the outcome for those nurses? And a lot of them, any- a lot of them got fired. And so we tried everything that we could to to stop it, um, but a lot of them got fired. And so many of them sued, and uh, I'm representing them. Mm-hmm. So it's on the back end. And so how is that suit going? Uh, it. I mean, amazingly, it's still in the preliminary stages. But what this yeah. far out? Yeah. Well, because you have to go through the administrative phase of it, and I mean, as many of the listeners and everybody and members know, that is a long process. There's no hurry at the EEOC to come up with any mm-hmm. answers, and so you go through that and you get your letter, and then you can uh, file a lawsuit. And in uh, federal court, it just, the schedules are extended. And, but actually, in, at the state court, we, we have gotten past the motion to dismiss phase. And so we're moving into the discovery and, and trial phase. So that was, pretty, that was pretty big. Many people who have fought back against the shot mandates have acknowledged that it was very hard finding lawyers to represent them. Mm-hmm. So, and... Why is that, and why were you different? So the first question: Why won't lawyers do it? I think I mean some people describe lawyers as uncreative. I don't know if that's true or not, but people keep saying that. You know, like I'm a lawyer, so I don't I don't have any creative. And I think what they mean by that is is okay. Well, the law's over here. I'm going to go read the law, and I'm going to tell you what the law is. And here's the case law over here, and I'll tell you what the case law is. And so that produces this result and so it's a culture i guess of rule following it's like well we've got a rule over here it's a mandate and everything so what does the rule say and here's how we so i think that there's a culture there and then there's the culture of just i i think i think among the feds for freedom membership there's people of all political stripes and then there are people who were of one political persuasion and then they started following the idea like this doesn't seem right and then they they find their political affiliations changing and everything else but um i don't know in the law legal profession on the bench and at the um among the especially the big firms it's just a very liberal culture and for whatever reason i mean the liberal um uh the the Solicitude for the mass mandates, vaccine mandates, it seems to be strongest, the more liberal people were. Um, but it's kind of interesting because I I came up listening to punk rock and everything, and you're supposed to question all authority. And then <laughs> and and so it just seemed as a as a former liberal, I guess, it's like, what the heck happened over there to you guys? Like to see to see mandates, people checking for vaccine cards at punk rock shows. Because you you, you, you know, Facebook figures out what your interests 
are or might have been in the past, right? So they've they got me pegged as somebody who listened to punk rock in the 90s. And then, like, some, you see little, like, uh, updates from these bands you listen to as, as a teenager. And they're still playing and they're <laughs> requiring vaccine cards at their shows. And it's like... Do you realize what you've become? You've become everything that you said that you fought against. You're you're for the you're for the establishment. You're for big business. Like there there are band there's a band called Big Business, and it's supposed to be <laughs> ironic. I don't know what they did with the vaccine mandate, but hopefully they see. I mean, so the whole thing was just utterly baffling to me but in any case you were asking about the legal profession not about well, let me let me ask before we we go further with why you were different yeah what what are they teaching in law school if it's not the constitution as the ultimate yeah well you raise a really interesting point because what they're teaching mostly is case law the interpretation of the constitution which can be pretty far divorced from the text of, of the constitution what's the point of going to a law school if they don't teach the ultimate law we that we had a, a group like in one of my biggest classes and for the first um for the for the first like get together they just had everybody in the room and there's like 200 people in the room stand up and say why they came to law school and there is one guy who, who stood up and he said, money, women, and power. And he <gasps> sat down. <laughs> it's like, well, that, I mean, you, some people are just there to get a job and, and like a nice paying job and whatever else. And, you know, the parents were lawyers or whatever else. And it's just like, hey, this seems like a good idea. You know, I did well in, in undergraduate school, so... Let's give this legal thing a whirl. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is a really versatile uh, degree, but so why were you different? Um, I, I guess I entered into the whole thing on a on a different premise. Um, I just I went into law school. I mean, like I I've mentioned the the pro life movement, and I don't, I don't want to offend anybody's political sensibilities or anything like that but it is not what it on is. this show <laughs> so I, I you know i just i got the sense that there was something deeply wrong with this whole abortion thing and um i wanted to know what went wrong like why is there such an injustice happening and i wanted to understand it and understand it well and with some authority and that's what brought me to law school and the, the my wife will tell you like figuring out how to like pay for it and all that sort of thing were very much like secondary um considerations or tertiary uh and it's just i got to i got to i got to figure this out and so and you know young and idealistic and everything so i came in there wanting to know like jurisprudence and the constitution and the root causes of things and um you know as what as my as my mentor said um he's like roe versus wade is not the problem which he's like it's a symptom of the problem it's like okay and so what is the problem then and it's it's what you hinted at it's we're not 
we're not studying. We're not talking about the Constitution. We're talking about case law. We're talking about what a judge says, the Constitution says. It's like, well, I mean, you can read the Constitution, and you can read what the judge says, and they're two different things. So what's the problem here? And Well, the judge is just making things up. Mm-hmm. Um, so what made me different? I just, I just came there with a different... I, I, you know, I don't know. I can't get into people's heads as to why they're at, at law school and everything, but um, I, I was there for really uh, I, idealistic reasons and and trying to get at the uh, root cause of things. And then once I got used to, once I got used to uh, at being in like making arguments and thinking thoughts that people want to make you uncomfortable for thinking, like want to punish you for saying or thinking these things. Um, yeah, there's something freeing in that. I was like, all right, what else, what else is out there? And, you know, it's sort of my career just led me to other issues, the religious liberty and everything. And, and then, um, and the vaccine mandate, it's like, somebody needs to say something and I, and once I started saying something, then the other people who realized there was a problem just started finding me. Will there be more lawyers whose eyes will be opened and who will stand up in the future? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have they awakened? Yes. But well, you know, once, once the first few judgments come out, then you, you'll have lawyer, lawyers lined up, you know, and we've had blood, the whole blood or blood in the water thing, but, mm-hmm. um, but all cynicism aside, I just, I think that two things are happening. One is that it's just becoming more okay to question the official narrative. And then, a, and then two, a number of people who may have been whole hog for, for the narrative are starting to come to their own conclusion that there was something wrong with the narrative. And, and so both of those phenomena together are going to lead to mm-hmm. more people. Um, I don't know, standing up for, for, for what's right in this, this whole discussion. So how are you introduced to Marcus Thornton and feds for freedom? Uh, you know, I, I, you mentioned that I was in the Trump administration. We were working on stuff that was uh explosive border issues everything like that and so i mean some days i would get out of my house to go to work and it's dark out because i live so far away from dc and there would be reporters out on the street you know asking for an interview right and so and then you know people would find me on facebook to tell me i'm a jerk and so, and is this because of your work on the town council? Well, this is no, this is Trump administration, oh, Trump but administration. yeah. And okay. then, um, and I say all that because I get a message um, from Facebook, and you you sort of have to go into the special section to get a message from somebody who isn't your friend. Yes. Um, and actually, I had shut down all my social media. Um, during government service, so I was just give, getting back into it, I guess. And I've always had a arm's length um, relationship with that stuff, anyway. And so I say all that because I got this message from this guy, 
and his picture was his back. And I'm like, and he's like, hi, my name is Marcus Thornton and um, I'm looking for like legal representation. I was like, is this, is this like some sort of scam? Like, is this some, somebody who just wants to tell me I'm a jerk or something like that, you know? But the thing that probably, um, I was highly skeptical, but the, the, he said the magic words, which was, uh, Bob Destro said, I should, I, I should contact you. And Bob Destro is the mentor that I mentioned earlier. And he went on to work at the state department as the, um, deputy secretary for, um, democracy, labor, and uh, I, I'm forgetting the exact title, but I guess, uh, he and Marcus had crossed paths and, so Marcus reached out to me and although I was skeptical, I, I responded to Marcus and, and then, I mean, yeah, these guys are legit and wow, medical freedom. I've been doing some medical freedom stuff. This is great. You know? So I don't think I have been out of touch with, uh, uh, Bob Destro and I don't know that he realized how deep in the weeds I was with, uh, our local mandates and everything like that. I think he just knew that I was that way, <laughs> getting myself into 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 controversies. So. And so, was this in the fall of 2021? When yeah, was? Yeah, yeah. This was the yeah, you know, yep, late fall into winter of 2021. And so, what is the definition and job of general counsel? As you are. Our Feds for Freedom's general counsel. Yeah. So there's actually, so typically a general counsel for an organization, they make sure that all the organizational paperwork is in order and everything like that. And I, I, or I should say we are firm. They, we do definitely have that job. And then in an organization where, um, so sometimes an organization needs to hire an attorney, um, and it would be the general counsel who makes recommendations about how, you know, who to hire and who, which firms are good for this, that, or the other thing. But, uh, feds for freedom have, have sort of added to that job description by asking me to run the, um, the EEO um, yes. project basically for, for feds for freedom and, um, you know, create the class action suits bringing EEO type complaints. And for our listeners, EEOC is the equal employment opportunity commission. Yes. And yes. there are, okay. So in a sentence, why, what is the EEOC and why is it there? Okay. In one sentence. To enforce I won't even do. I don't want to even do a whole sentence <laughs> to enforce the uh, the Civil Rights Act, the Americans with Disability Act, uh, the Rehabilitation Act, and a few other lesser known statutes. And we've talked about the EEOC a little bit on um, on this podcast, and we I think have figured out that it is not actually to protect the employee it is actually to protect the employer well i think at least with the government i think well is that yeah. what you think i think my thoughts are complex uh, although the result has been like 
that they're they're basically protecting the employer. I found that a lot of the EEOC people uh, in the in the government they're really mission mission oriented, and they would be able to see the civil rights elements mm-hmm. what we're doing and immediately respond to it. They they care about those things, mm-hmm. but. I think that this is a new application of civil rights law, and it, I think it sends a lot of people for a loop. They're used to seeing, they know 40 years of case law on racial discrimination and disparate impact and everything. And to bring in this new thing, we're claiming, well, first of all, religious, religious uh, discrimination is just doesn't, the case law isn't there because the cases aren't there mm-hmm. so much. I mean, it just doesn't happen as much as you would see racial discrimination um, for whatever reason. And so uh, here's this giant group of people, and they're talking about religious rights, which in the first place, like I, I, I as an EEOC official need to brush up on my religious rights element. And then, and then there are these additional things perceived as a disability, which is even rare rarer than um than the religious rights and it's mm-hmm. like ah this is not what i'm doing from nine to five uh 40 hours a week uh so it throws people for a loop and rather than stick their neck out and doing something it's like ah uh, denied you know and they mm-hmm. can get it off their desk and it's on to the next thing they've got the process or they know the process exists and so there's no real downside to just kicking it down the road so has your job been to bring the class act, the agency class actions um, cases forward? Yeah. And so we've got um, class actions for pretty much every agency, correct? Yeah. Well, a lot, a lot of them. We've got, we've got 16 or 17 that we're working on. Okay. Um, and some of them, are, there's a couple parts of the same agency. Some of them have already been killed, correct? Like the NAVC has already been killed, or at least one of them has. Okay, well, it defined. Defi- well, they've been denied. They've been but, denied. So but, what does this mean? Been denied. I mean, right. does so you present your case for them, mm-hmm. and the judge says, "Sorry, there's been no discrimination here." Is right. that basically what they're saying? Well, or it, it's more like maybe there's discrimination, but it's not discrimination that's illegal. Um, according to these statutes. And I think for the reasons I, I just mentioned, this isn't a, too much of a surprising result. Mm-hmm. Um, but we still have appeal rights. And this whole question of how these civil rights statutes apply to this vaccine mm-hmm. context, it remains unsettled. Um, it's there are more and more answers coming out from the district courts and some appeal courts and everything, but. So how do you argue EEOC? I mean, really briefly, can you bring case law up to an EEOC judge? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it's basically like a court. Yes. Mini court. Yes. yes. That, a it's very exactly. particular court. Yes. Okay. The idea is to resolve things outside of the federal courts um, so that the, 
federal court's dockets aren't clogged up with these cases. There are some people who have already made it to the point that they can actually go to federal court. Yes. And do you have any advice for those people as they are headed to federal court over their claims? I, I it, maybe it sounds self-serving, but I would say get a lawyer. Uh, they, there's just, there's just some point where, um, without the training, you, you might miss some things, mm-hmm. uh, opportunities for discovery, how, how to conduct discovery. And then there may be arguments available to you that you might miss if you're trying to freelance it. For someone who is not yet at federal court and still mm-hmm. within the EEOC system, can they do it themselves? It's supposed to be plaintiff friendly enough that you can, but some of the same issues exist, except that the administrative judge in an EEOC uh, case acts more of a fact finder than you would find in federal court where it's the job of the parties to bring here. Here is our case, including our, our evidence. And what do you, what's your decision based on the evidence that we mm-hmm. brought forward? The administrative judge could take a more informal approach and say, I've got a question about this. Can you produce this information for me? Um, so they can take a more active role. What we were seeing, even within the, I mean, very beginnings of EEOC claims, like uh, the report of investigation, which is the the final document that the investiga- EEOC investigator gives the, um, the claimer, um, that investigations actually were not being conducted. Hmm. Like they weren't actually doing their due diligence and going and talking with people about it. They weren't. So... <sighs> What advice can you give people as they go before a judge mm-hmm. to point out things like that? Yeah. And do you think the judges are actually interested in seeing reason mm-hmm. or hearing reason? Yeah. Well, to the first question of the record um, and the report, at, just in real time, as people are seeing the investigators miss things, they need to point it out to the investigators. They need to. And what if the investigator said, well, I don't see any reason. He's not in. Uh, he has no part to play in the mandates. Right. Or in the policies. Yeah. So, so he doesn't need to be investigated. It, well, exactly. So. So what if they weren't were pointed out to the investigator? Press the point. Uh, a couple times, get their answer, get it in writing by email, and then you've got you've got your record. You can bring that yeah. up to the judge later, um, and you know that could be helpful. But basically, um, create your paper trail mm-hmm. for the. But to your question about the judges, <clears throat> my impression is that a lot of the administrative judges are. Uh, well, I, I don't know a lot of them. I, I actually, I, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but it seems to me like some of these are doing this as a part-time thing and they've got their own practice. And you know, basically when, because I would imagine there aren't a whole lot of claims in certain regions of the country and there isn't a need to have a full-time uh, administrative judge on staff. And so that's the impression I get that some of these are, are part-timers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some of them were just looking for some job and they said, Hey, this looks nice and it has some benefits and gosh, it's civil rights. This is wonderful. You know, Oh, they weren't expecting this. <laughs> yeah. 
And then, um, and then some of them were probably real true believers, but probably over more racial and maybe religious, um, issues. Mm -hmm. But those, if they're really a, a true believer, believer, a classical liberal, they should get it. Like I was saying before, um, it's a, it's a perspective. It has validity because it's, this person holds it deeply mm -hmm. and you, it certain attaches certain rights attached to that. And let's have this discussion on those terms, but I think they're fewer and far between. And even the ones that are true believers, this is, this is coming out of left field mm -hmm. for them. And they're just like, ah. <laughs> so in the town hall that we just had with feds for freedom, uh -huh. um, you said that this is how individual, individual people can get accountability. Mm -hmm. Yes. And would you like to talk just a couple sentences about that? Yeah. So many of the people who have seen what happened. They want to see uh, officials being held accountable for, for what they did or didn't do. And the types of claims that we're bringing are some of the only claims that would actually hold a public official personally liable in, in money damages for violating religious rights or the constitution. Mm -hmm. And so they're sort of niche areas of the law, but typically you would be, you would be suing like the, head of an agency, but in their official capacity and in as you'd be suing them as a figurehead, not necessarily the person who made the decision that brought about this wrong. But here, here with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act and Bivens claims, uh, you can hold, hold that single individual who did wrong mm -hmm. um, responsible. Yes. I, I should say, though, that none of it's very well developed, and especially Bivens claims, they're, they're now disfavored, but they exist. So some federal employees were fired even before the injunction came down in January of 2022. Mm -hmm. So do you know how many were fired, um, and would you tell some of their stories? I don't know how many of them were fired. Um, it's really hard to say, I guess, so I, I guess you could say it was a minority, but it was the people who were, who were most vocal, but the, the fascinating thing, but even for those who weren't fired, there were people who were locked out of buildings, locked in buildings, uh, mm -hmm. in skiffs, um, and had, had their belongings. They were supposed to go on international travel. They had their belongings packed up and, Oh, now you can't go on this international travel cause you won't get the vaccine. And by the way, if you want your stuff back, you have to get the vaccine <laughs> sort of thing. So, um, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, but the, the thing is so many of them, and it's it's a theme because we we sit down and we discuss the case 
or we'll discuss after, or we're just bringing it as facts. So many of them were the real go-getters, the people that leadership were relying on to get everything done, that 20% that actually makes uh, uh, an organization run. Like, those were the people. And so the they, leaders within the agencies, yeah. those people who spoke up very, yeah. very strongly, it was those people who were retaliated against, like, immediately. Yeah, well, well, exactly. So the, the people who are performing so well on, on every other task, they see something wrong with this vaccine mandate, and they know enough because of their the instincts that made them an excellent uh, federal employee, say, this isn't right. This isn't what I'm showing up every day and, and working my butt off to support. And so they said something, and then and what pe- people, supervisors, I've, I've had so many... Plaintiffs and complainants say, I had a great relationship with this person before all this stuff. And that, and and now over this vaccine thing, they completely turn on me and they're and they're instituting disciplinary action and um what's the phrase? Uh, disciplinary up to disciplinary action up to and including termination from federal employment. What the heck? I've been doing an excellent job. And then over and over again, you hear, you hear people from our membership and from our classes, like, I, I was proud to be working for the federal government. I loved doing something for my nation because I felt like I was standing for something and, and, and serving my country. And then my country completely flips on all the ideals that I thought I was upholding by showing up and busting my butt all day. Um, and it's a deeply, I don't know if traumatizing is the wrong word, but it, unsettling, like the ground has shifted beneath my feet. Like this is my day-to-day life. And suddenly I'm, I'm finding out that, when um when it really matters the the people i was counting on to uphold the ideals i care so deeply about are 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 nowhere to be found and that's that's just devastating so i heard a story i think from one of the boyden grain associates uh, lawyers that there were two federal employees who were fired right before the injunction came down. Oh yeah. Yeah. Would you like to talk about that briefly? Sure. Well, um, I'm only aware of the, uh, sort of the outlines of, of those particular, um, instances. And it was actually Boyd and Gray who was a little closer uh, to those plaintiffs, but that's not an isolated thing. There were a few others just in our universe where, it, things happen right before the the mandate. Um, having worked in the government, um, what is the line? Don't attribute to a conspiracy what you can explain by incompetence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there's a lot of truth to that. So maybe there was nothing. It was a horrible coincidence. Well, but um, in, I mean, I think that with the ones that you're mentioning with Boyd and Gray, I, I think there's more to it than that. I think that there's reason to think that um, 
Yeah, the timing, there was something to the timing there. And what was interesting about it is they called, the lawyers called the agencies and asked them to take back, because it was like 12 hours later the injunction came in. Oh, yeah. And they asked the agencies to take back the federal employees, Hmm. and the agencies refused. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's the... uh... That's the world we're living in right now. So um, do you have evidence of blacklisting? We've been seeing this a little bit more recently. Well, um, probably a year ago or a year and a half ago. And then there's been another wave that we've been noticing. There's been some blacklisting going on um, amongst the federal employees that pushed back. Do you have evidence of blacklisting? Have you seen it? Well, in terms of a a centralized place uh, the the agencies would have records of of the people who requested uh accommodations or who didn't get the vaccine um it's not clear exactly what they're doing with that but i have seen in individual cases that the individuals become enough of a thorn in their in management's side that um they're well known everybody knows their name the the management gets together i have seen uh, evidence of management getting together and then they have water cooler talk about oh this guy you know he's such a pain in the arse and everything else uh and so in I have seen where in an informal way the objectors become known and across at least cert, certain sections of of the agency. Now what what the agencies are doing on a global level with some of this information, I mean, it re- remains mysterious uh, at least to me. I think that depending on the agency and depending on the leadership there, some of them just don't care that it's there. They're, they're on to the next thing. This COVID was so 2021, but some of them I think are just, I don't know the, the, they're really dedicated to this COVID and they want to stamp out. Well, we know that the federal employees names who pushed back were put onto a list of, like dissenters. We know that that list probably has not been, um, uh, has not been scrubbed. Yeah. Um, do you think that it's going to come back to bite the people that are on that list when it comes to like, we're seeing, uh, the pronoun, mm-hmm. um, the pronoun usage be like mandated. Like right. you have to call me by my certain pronoun. Right. Do you think the people who put in exemptions, are that's going to be kind of compared against the original list of COVID dissenters. I think that possibility exists. And after everything that we've seen, how, how could we put it past them? Um, all the things that we thought they weren't going to do, like we were saying earlier, the, the tin hat stuff, it all came to, it all came to pass. So why wouldn't they? They've proven themselves to be petty, vindictive, and just bizarre in their in their actions and their rationales for their actions. So, why wouldn't why why shouldn't we expect 
this sort of thing to happen. I mean, in fact, it's, it's the opposite. We should be getting ready. We should be asking ourselves, what are we going to do when this happens? So what are you going to do? I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm ready for the next fight. <laughs> Just give me a call. <laughs> <laughs> so Feds for Freedom, and actually that was one of my next questions, but first, yeah. Feds for Freedom has been censored yeah. in some way or form since its beginning. Yeah. What evidence do you have of the censorship? Yeah. Like, what did you see? So, uh, the, I mean, the, the board sees it. I, 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 I see them talking about it. Right. But I've also seen this with, uh, with friends of mine and public officials, you have, have your personal accounts and you see how they, how they interact with whatever the venue, the, the medium is. And then, you have your official accounts and it's acting differently. And at first you're just wondering, well, what's going on? And then you see all of this evidence, the Twitter files and everything else to, sh- to say, well, there's real rate limiting going on and, and censorship going on and everything else. And you say to yourself, well, this must be why my account acts so weird. And we see plenty of that. But then in addition to that, in, um, Feds for Freedom were getting feedback from their membership to say, I'm trying to repost what you posted or share it with my friends or whatever. And I'm getting a message, a warning that says, Feds for Freedom, uh, are you sure you want to repost this? This organization has posted false information in the past. And I... I was really surprised to see that because I, I had seen those sorts of things, but they would speak in language that was vague enough. Mm-hmm. Whereas just, are you sure you want to post this? I don't know that they've posted things that could be considered. Yeah. But who are is, they to say that? Right. Exactly. So that from a legal perspective really raised my eyebrows. And I said, this, this just does not look Mm -hmm. So what can you do about it? And I have asked some people about this and they have said, well, these are private entities Mm -hmm. like Facebook's private. So can you do anything about it? Well, it's one thing to say. This is our space that we created and these are the people who can come into it. And these are the people who can't at some point. Two things can happen in the law. At some point, it can become a limited public forum, and that's going to tend to happen if there's some sort of public funding. And I think that's where this collusion between the Department of Homeland Security and and the White House, where they're trying to punish Twitter users for saying the wrong thing, that's where you can get... Uh, I th- I think potentially you could get a, a social media company to exist in this limited public forum area. But um, in addition to that, I mean, a, a private company can't say something false about another company. And so is it really true that you know, Feds for Freedom is posting false information? Or is it true that there is it more the case that they're posting controversial information that you don't like um, ah. if it's and if they're doing the the latter but saying the former then um, there could be legal consequences mm-hmm. and we're, we're, we're taking a close look at that 
So did you receive personal pushback from other lawyers or the government for your um, work with the with Feds for Freedom? I received pushback as a councilman doing the Feds for Freedom stuff. And in in that context, in for Feds for Freedom, I think that there hasn't been anything directed at me personally. Um, but And the reason for that, I think, is because I just... Uh, with our own with our own firm, um, we, we sort of can take the clients we want and everything else. Mm-hmm. I think that if if we were if I were a, a partner in a large firm, I think that that's where I really see see the the pushback. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but actually, the um, national media has has taken note of some of our cases and contacted me as attorneys, but really more from a curiosity standpoint. And as part of the process of responding, we, we just made our judgments about the, uh, the trustworthiness of the outlet and everything else, but it wasn't so much pushing back and even over the things that have been printed I haven't seen it. I, I haven't seen that. The executive power has not acted to uphold the Constitution. They mm-hmm. have sought to undermine it, yes. as we've seen. A handful of congressmen have sought to uphold the law, but only a handful, and to bring in right laws yeah. uh, to help. But many people say that the judicial branch is um, in our favor. And we have received multiple victories in court, yet a majority of judges seem not to be judging according to the Constitution. And we were talking about this. Should we be putting our hope in the judicial system? And if not them, in whom? Oh, we should be putting, no, we should not put our, we should not put our hope in the judicial system. We should put our hope in God. And he, you know, he will in, inspire the judges to uphold the Constitution. And if he can't reach those judges, then we as the people who are inspired will know what we're dealing with. And and a judiciary that needs reform. I think we're already there, but I also think that there, there are reasons to hope. We have, you know, like we saw in the Fifth Circuit, we've received some really favorable decisions Um We've seen at the Supreme Court level some of the judges uh, indicating their willingness to be at least sympathetic to these arguments and take a serious look at them, uh, where some in the lower courts are just out to lunch mm-hmm. and they're 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 just not engaging in the issues. Mm-hmm. We've seen a lot of that at the administrative judge level. Just uh, you know, vac- vaccination is not a protected class. You we're not arguing that vaccination is a protected class, so why don't you engage isn't, with our arguments? Isn't that the line that they give a lot, lot yeah. the protected class argument? I'm like, well, who cares about protected <laughs> class? I mean, the Constitution says this. Who cares yeah. about that? Yeah. Oh, by the way. Yeah. So how has this, how has this whole time uh, spurred on your faith? Hmm. Um, as you have been in the medical freedom fight for some time, 
I have been really blessed in my career. I can remember <laughs> just being young and very idealistic and being interested in law and deciding against it originally because I didn't want to become some sort of sellout lawyer type of thing. And so I taught for a couple of years and then it just, I just kept getting bugged by this, this idea of um, pursuing a legal, legal mm-hmm. education. And I didn't send in my acceptance letter until the last day that I could do it, that it could be postmarked because I was really um, concerned over this, this whole thing. But, you know, God has really blessed me to put me in a circumstance where I can make a career of arguing for, for things that I also believe in. And I just feel, although the arguments are are difficult and all around you, there, there are people who are, um, experiencing awful things. I mean, it, it's, it's good to know from a faith perspective that um, you're you're in a way serving serving people who need something who are in a way poor because they don't have they don't have the arguments and so I can come along and I can provide the thing that you don't have the mm-hmm. the argument the advocacy uh, there was a there was a person I used to work with who had a tattoo of Voice of the Voiceless on on their wrist and I it, that's always stuck in my mind it's like. If I, if I if I see a plaintiff or a group of people who are who can see there's something wrong, they can't put quite put the words on it, um, maybe, or they don't know the ins and outs of the legal. Um, I I can at least say, well, here's what the law says. Here are the arguments we can make, and and let's and here are the ones that have the best chance, and let's mm-hmm. let's go. I mean, it feel it. From a faith perspective, I really feel that uh, um, you know serving God and in, in in doing that, and I think that that's emboldened me to um, not shy away from arguments that I know are are going to be unpopular. Um, so it's just helped me to grow in my faith, and I've also been inspired by people who have turned to faith when when. Things that were so big in their life, their career just went completely sideways. Mm-hmm. And some people who have, who have seen their faith grow uh, as as these things that they were depending on um, changed shape, you know. Yeah. And and I think that and also just the incredible. Uh, impact that a group of dedicated people have have had uh you see the hand of god in it you, you see the hand of god in marcus sending his weird message to me on facebook and responding and then it turning out to be wonderful and just uh you know the the interactions with with everybody the different personalities and, and everything and knowing like the what we're we're looking out on the world and seeing like such craziness, but then being able to know that together we're we're fighting um for what we know is right mm-hmm. um and then the end uh the the arguments that will be vindicated in the end um there's a real there's there's a joy in that even though even though it's 
against the the sadness and absurdity that you find out there in the world. Well, our time is short. I could spend all day talking with you. This has been <laughs> really fun. So, but if the American citizen can mm-hmm. do one thing to combat the c- corruption that we see in America today, mm-hmm. what would it be? Pray. <laughs> Pray. <laughs> Seriously, the, everything else will flow yes. from that. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for coming on with us, Scott. It's been great having you. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Stephanie. Thanks so much for tuning in. Be sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And of course, share this episode. Visit our website at fedsforfreedom.org. I'll see you next time.